So how come you guys call yourselves sluts? Well, Rock says that's what they're going to call us anyway, so we might as well beat them to the punch. <laughs> Is that the kind of music you want to play? Play? No, 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 no. Produce. You know, bring up the bass line, control stuff. That's what I'm going to do. So how come you're just riding around? I don't know. I was following this band for a while, and, well, I thought I had a chance, but all they wanted was... Look, you don't just walk in and say, hi, I'm a producer. You know, you gotta work up to it, okay? When they say, don't judge a book by its cover, they had this late 80s trauma release in mind. Granted, you have to peel back a lot of layers, but this movie was ahead of its time when it comes to making a social statement. We're still up all night, and this episode, we watched... Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town. Hello, everybody, and welcome to USA Up All Night with me, Aranda. Hi, I'm Gilbert Godfrey, the comedian in the cupboard for USA Up All Night. In this movie, you'll see two of your favorite stars. Now, if you drink enough beer, you'll start seeing more of your favorite stars. Stay with me on USA Up All Night. Welcome to Still Up All Night, your one-stop shop for all things USA Up All Night. I'm Travis Yates, joined by my co-host Rob Cady. And Rob, we're back after summer break. In the spirit of reliving the awesome B-movies from our youth, we decided to take the summer off like we used to when we were kids. So Rob, the question everyone asks on the first day back to school how was your summer break? <sighs> uh, not as eventful as I would like it to have been, but um, hey, that's the COVID world we live in right now. So it is, uh, and of course we're in Florida, so it's a uh, it's a raging fire down here, a raging <laughs> fire of COVID. That'd be a great uh, uh, alternative title for uh, a USA Up All Night movie. But uh, yeah, my summer break was was good. Uh, I was able to do some summer reading, um, specifically Austin Trunick's, uh, of course. The totally rad the canon film guide volume one and uh, i want to share an excerpt from the book by sam Furstenberg, who eloquently explains the importance of b movies which you know we attempt to do quite often when discovering some of the groundbreaking filmmaking techniques first attempted you know by daring filmmakers during their low budget exploits during the time period that we cover on this podcast for example our episode 7 film Return to Horror High which was way before its time with a Christopher Nolan-esque timeline and a wink wink and nod to the horror genre later seen in the Scream franchise so it's actually the foreword to the Canon Film Guide Volume 1 that Furstenberg writes the 1980s also saw the emergence of the home video phenomenon, the video cassette tape rental economy, and the rise to power of non-major independent production and distribution companies to supply the product that was missing from the marketplace. Canon became the largest of them all, producing more than 530 movies. At some point, it was called a mini-major. In the 1990s, studios took notice of what was happening and started to produce the same types of movies that Cannon was making with the likes of Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Van Damme, and so on, but with much bigger budgets. Those new genre movies were much more elaborate, expensive, and better looking, and consequently, the majors reclaimed the market for themselves. By doing so, the majors pushed the independent companies back to the corners they came out of in the first place. And he goes on to write, there was a capsule of about 15 years through the 1980s and the first half of the 1990s, which can be characterized or branded as the period which canon revolutionized the role of independent genre filmmaking in Hollywood. Well said. So, so Rob, one, this makes me so sad, that Furstenberg line of the studios pushing the indie companies back into the corner that they came from. Yeah, um, But it also puts into perspective what we're celebrating here on the Still Up All Night podcast. I mean, sure, we love the silliness of these films. That's what USA Up All Night and Rhonda and Gilbert were all about. But it also seems like each episode we find just some filmmaking gold in these films that are often tossed aside and not taken serious from a cinematic perspective. So if you're listening to us, 
thank you for celebrating the films with us and we'll continue to celebrate that window of time that Furstenberg mentions that ended up being much more than just a low budget period in the film industry but also a period of reinvention yeah absolutely I mean having that sort of flexibility to take those chances and and risks and and do something that isn't just totally geared towards you know box office receipts um yeah, that's, and that's why we're here. It's what we love about this stuff. And coincidentally, Rob, Furstenberg directed two of my favorite 80s B-movies of all time, Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo, and American Ninja. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Two classics right there. Yeah. Uh, and again, we want to reiterate our thanks for all the work done by Austin Trunick to write the book. He is arduously working on Volume 2 now and posts awesome updates on his Twitter feed, so you can follow him at Canon Film Guide, and uh, you won't be disappointed. I promise you. Well, I think he's getting getting pretty close to being done with Volume Two as well, from from some of the recent updates he's posted. And I understand the plan is for a third volume at least, yeah. perhaps even more. I'm not sure. I think he's breaking them up into four year time periods, so we may even get a, a fourth volume out of all this if we're lucky. That'd be awesome. So that takes us to this episode's film. We are back in a big way, kicking off the fall semester with a movie by request. It's Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town. We're coming off the heels of our first official trauma film with The Toxic Avenger, and we'll keep going with that theme. Uh, like episode 10's film, Surf Nazis Must Die, Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town wasn't a trauma film, but it was a trauma release in 1989 who okay first yeah. initial reaction <laughs> rob to <laughs> chopper chicks in zombie town it's an odd film i i don't yeah it's, it felt like in many ways a, a step down compared to the the previous trauma releases you know as you just mentioned toxic avenger and surf nazis um they're just they're it, it's an odd film. There's definitely a step down in quality, um, clearly in budget as well. Uh, but you know, as as we discussed, there are some <laughs> absolute little golden nuggets to be shined up in this one that uh, you know help it along the way. Um, not the the biggest fan of it, but uh, yeah, we'll get into that. So uh, and maybe it's uh, I, this semester I'm teaching cultural representation in cinema. So it may be that it's fresh on my mind, but I'm really going I'm, to I'm going to bring bring out some big guns here when it comes to uh, analyzing this film. So uh, hopefully oh, I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully you, you uh, you're on board. So uh, this movie is written and directed by Dan Hoskins and Hoskins only has one other credit to his name writer of the 1987 dramedy Pretty Smart, which was Patricia Arquette's first film. Uh, are you familiar with Pretty Smart? I don't remember, recall seeing it. I don't know. I'd have to I'd have to see something from it. It doesn't um, ring a bell, particularly for as her first role. Um, I'm Googling it now to see if it no, that doesn't look familiar to me at all. So I, I don't think I've seen that one. The crux of the film, it, it, the, with the giveaway of the uh, title, is it's you know, looks aren't everything, brains aren't everything. Sort of finding that mix uh, for a woman of the '80s, I think. So we'll we'll come back to that in just a bit. But uh, yeah, okay. so I, I'm not real familiar with the film either. But I, I read up a little bit. So one of the producers of uh, Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town is Arthur Sarkeesian. So Rob Sarkeesian has had a Forrest Gump-like career. He is a former English fashion designer turned film producer, and he went on to produce While You Were Sleeping, Last Man Standing, and the Rush Hour franchise. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure he uh, did well with that franchise. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, of course, Last Man Standing with Bruce Willis, While mm -hmm. You Were Sleeping, I believe, was that... Um, Meg Ryan? It's not Meg Ryan. It's um... no. Oh, it's Jeez. Sandra Bullock. Got to be Sandra. Bullock. Oh yes, yes, yeah, it is. Yeah. It is, and and she pretends to be the girlfriend of of the guy in a coma. Yes, um, and, and then and, falls in love with his brother or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we just coined the uh, subtitle of every rom com made in the '90s. Is that Meg Ryan? Oh, if not, it's got to be Sandra Bullock. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, so the movie stars a host of veteran TV actors. 
Jamie Rose gets top billing as a fiery redhead Dee Dee. Rob, I wasn't familiar with Rose. Uh, she's a, a Gina Davis lookalike, and she's a veteran TV actor and has appeared in a handful of movies over the years. She also runs an acting studio in L.A. present day, and she wrote a book, Shut Up and Dance, The Joy of Letting Go of the Lead, on the dance floor and off. So a busy yeah. career for Jamie Rose. Did she uh, strike any memories for you? She looked familiar, but I, I couldn't, you know, without looking her up, come up with anything that I specifically recalled her from. But but if you go through particularly her, her TV career, you know, the eight million different shows she'd been on. So, you know, hence why she looked familiar. But again, nothing I specifically recalled. And certainly not in terms of uh, movies. Yeah. It also stars Catherine Carlin as just the really outspoken she's fun character the leader of the biker game rocks and uh, carlin has such an impressive resumes that we could probably play six degrees of Catherine carlin uh her tv appearances include night court married with children passions bold and the beautiful days of our lives desperate housewives beverly hills 90210 the list goes on and on again um it's you know that that gal that was in that thing sort of deal i, I yep. not really familiar with Catherine Carlin are you no not not at all like even in this she didn't look uh didn't look familiar to me and and same thing I had to to look her up and uh but even then most of the stuff she'd been in would stuff I wouldn't necessarily have seen Mm -hmm. so yeah she was she was the big kind of uh for being you know essentially one of the lead characters the the one I was probably least familiar with and then Leisha Naff, and I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, who plays TC. Now, she's got a story of great interest to you and I, Rob. Do you know why? Uh, I mean, she's been in a, a million great things, you she's, know, like she's Total been, Recall. Yes. And, Not only in Total Recall, but well, she's perhaps yeah. <laughs> most well-known as the three-breasted mutant in Total Recall. Uh, I mean, that's perhaps one of the most infamous flash scenes in all of cinema, short of maybe Phoebe Cates in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, right? Well, and and uh, oh, um, I just lost her name. The the uh, uh, Sharon Stone with the the leg. Maneuver. Yes, that's a different flash of all sorts yes, of kinds. But, yeah, but those three but, are probably yes. the, <laughs> the, uh, the biggest ones. Uh, but so, Rob even despite earning a daytime Emmy nomination for her work in an after-school special, Naff left acting to become a journalist studying at Florida Atlantic University and starting as a staff writer at the Palm Beach Post. So for those of you who don't know, that the Still Up All Night studio is located in South Florida. So Naff's first journalism gig was right in our own backyard, uh, Naff did make a return to Hollywood of sorts as an investigative celebrity reporter. So, interesting career for her as well. Definitely, yeah. Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town is labeled as a 1989 film, but it didn't see a U.S. release until April 27, 1990 at the World Fest Houston International Film Festival, where it didn't win Best Independent Theatrical feature film it was beat out by revenge of the radioactive reporter which sadly somehow never aired on usa up all night uh so (laughs) we'll never find out what that's about unless you know rob are you familiar with revenge of the radioactive reporter i am not i haven't even heard the title before so that's a, a brand new one for me uh we might have to look that one up on our own to 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 view and maybe bring it up at a later date all right so chopper <laughs> chicks debuted on usa up all night on august 29th 1992 it would air just four more times with its fifth and final appearance on july 15th 1994 okay rob so i want to circle back to our early conversation about how these b movies can sneak in some groundbreaking material and i'm gonna lay some heavy stuff on on you okay right. you ready I hope so. I hope I'm prepared for this. All right. So in 1991, Thelma and Louise was released. And the only way that Ridley Scott could get the film made was to direct it himself. Scott was producing the film and could not find a single director willing to take on the project. And the reason is because the screenplay flipped the script literally 
by reworking the male male buddy formula while making it a road film that featured female protagonists. One unnamed director even said to him, listen, dude, it's two bitches in a car. Damn. So how in the world am I making a connection to this episode's film? Well, two years prior to Thelma and Louise, the opening scene of Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town features a all-female biker gang roaring down the highway. It's not Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper, a la Easy Rider. It's Jamie Rose and Catherine Carlin. And it all goes back to Sam Furstenberg's point of how the indie films, the movie makers, were the ones pushing the social envelopes in the 1980s. And we see that here from the get-go in Chopper Chicks. Complete, oh, yeah. complete with an opening song, Underclass, by Alex Chilton, with the lyrics, It's a gas to be a member of the underclass. Oh, I mean, yeah, there's an absolute, you know, feminist edge in this film that, that kind of just really lingers in the background and is never really, you know, pulled to the front. Um, but, yeah, it's there. Absolutely. I don't know. At times I felt like they were hitting us over the head with it. I mean, you know, <laughs> in the time when they will get to these some of these scenes, but when they roll into this town, zombie town, essentially, you know, there's men shaking their heads at them. <laughs> Uh, you know, at one point the sheriff says, I'm going to get these women out of my town. I mean, it is like, you know, it, it is very, very uh, obvious at times. Uh, what do you make of the biker game? Uh, they're labeled the cycle sluts. Well, as they, as they say in the film, you know, they're going to call us sluts, so we might as well own it. Yeah. I mean, there you go. Another very powerful statement that we just heard in our cold open clip. Um, all right, so let's let's then kind of get into the the plot here because it is it is a lot. Uh, so the cycle sluts they're just kind of roaring through the countryside, um, town to town, living their best life, kind of as outcasts, and they find themselves in this kind of unique area. It's an um, kind of an unnamed desert landscape, presumably New Mexico, Nevada, something like that. They cruise by a sign that reads St. Peter's Home for Blind Orphans. <laughs> That's very specific. And the sign is complete with a smiling sun emoji wearing sunglasses. Ooh. So the lack of PC in the 80s rearing its mm -hmm. ugly head here. Well, there's a, a bunch of that in, in the film as well. But, I mean, that's the time these were made. And, yeah, there's, you know, as we've touched on in just about every episode, you know, we those are things we have to <laughs> manage these days. Yes. Uh, the gang stops in a small town, Zariah, population 128, to get some food. And I love the foreshadowing when one of the girls says, I'm hungry, let's eat. We'll be out of here in two hours. <laughs> and, you know, you just know, wait a minute. And there's a lot of there's a lot to read in there because you're heading into zombie town. She wants to eat. And as we'll get into, she's the first one that becomes a zombie. <laughs> Yes. Well, when she goes looking for meat. Right. Yes. Um, so the the girl rides off and a dwarf in a tuxedo appears out of nowhere, sets up a little ladder and erases the population sign of Zariah. So it reads 127 and then cut to a scene of a dead body being removed from a funeral casket and replaced with sandbags. So I have to admit, I'm intrigued uh, at this point. What, what, what are you thinking here as you're as we're kicking off the movie. Well, yeah, I, you know, I intentionally on this one um, went in blind because uh, I hadn't seen it before, so didn't want to, you know, read anything or wa even really watch a, a trailer. So, yeah, I, at that point, it was like I, I had no idea what was going on because, you know, we're then treated to the, the very odd funeral scene. <laughs> oh, yes. And, you know, the girls are the star of the movie, but... Rob, this supporting cast is just incredible. It's you know, an also also filled with, um, you know, that guy from that thing and classic yeah. that guy yes. from that thing, Don Calfa, best known as the mortician in 1985's Return of the Living Dead, and uh, here, not unintentional, I'm sure, plays Ralph Willem, the owner operator of Willem's Funeral Home, who then was uh, involved in that. Uh, casket burial when the sand starts pouring out of the corner and he notices he just starts kicking it down into the ground 
uh, in our he's, room. A, he's an absolute uh, scene stealer and and uh, you know highlight of the movie for me. Uh, just <laughs> a goofy role for you know for a guy who generally plays you know fairly goofy stuff um, at least in Return of the Living Dead which I you know probably most recognize him from but uh, enjoyed his performance in this and wish he had been uh, around a little bit more than he was yeah and absolutely a scene stealer uh, I, I want to go back to that in a bit but of course we buried the lead here as this is very early role for Billy Bob Thornton, yes. who plays uh, Dee Dee's husband. And uh, boy, when he first makes his appearance, it's hard to believe that this guy went on to become an A-lister because he just—he's <laughs> well, he's he's an interesting-looking individual already. But he here, is. he's he's got more hair than I think I've ever seen him with, and you know. It, he made the right choice later in, um, you know, for the most part, getting rid of it. Because <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's just say it's an interesting look. And he suits the role he, he plays in this film. Yeah, yeah, he, he did. Um, also, early MTV VJ Martha Quinn and comedian yep. Hal Sparks round out the well known actors that have minor roles in the film. So we're introduced to the residents from the St. Peter's Home for the Blind Orphans. Uh, a little later by way of broken down school bus and we get some more fun foreshadowing when one of the boys says uh, come on we're dying out here I mean Dan Hoskins really having a lot of fun with wordplay in his script and I I thought it was hilarious because of the dry matter of fact way that the actors deliver the lines you know the the script is poking fun at itself but the characters aren't well another group too all all the kids on the bus were were, uh, every time they appeared delivered just probably the best lines in the movie and uh, generated, for, at least for me, the most laughs. And uh, I enjoyed them and wish they had been in a couple more scenes. But, yeah. Uh, you know what I thought of, too, is how just perfect would it have been if the two Corys were two of the <laughs> two of the, the boys on the bus? That would have just been incredible. Icing on the cake at that point. Yes, absolutely. Uh, okay, so we finally get to the zombies promised to us in the title when a random boy on a bicycle investigates a strange sound that he hears in a mine shaft in the desert. Uh, he wanders into the mine and finds the source of the noise. It's coming from behind a, a locked door, but only whoever was there last left the lock hanging unlocked. So the boy walks into the room and then asks, Daddy? Uh, and then, you know, blood squirts out from underneath the door. So the plot is coming together here rather quickly, which I appreciate since usually that doesn't happen for us until around 45 minutes or so. Of these <laughs> At least. So what you, would you think of our kind of quasi-introduction to the zombies? Well, I mean, I, I hate to jump ahead, but when the zombies, you know, f- free themselves uh what what was that music? Okay, yeah, Let, we'll we'll get there in a minute. We're not there just yet, almost because. Um, well, it it gets there fairly quickly relative to the movies we've watched, but it still wasn't making a whole lot of sense at that at that point because I I couldn't initially figure out exactly what the zombies were saying. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and they're, and they're different from traditional zombies in that they do vocalize and and appear to have some intelligence yeah Um, but i couldn't initially make out quite what they were saying and and uh, of course it it all comes together and completely makes sense right uh, a a little ways down the road yeah when the zombies eat the boy and escape from the room there i mean circus music is like the best way i would describe it yep Um, yep it's i mean complete with slide whistle like it yeah (laughs) it it really immediately set the tone for okay. This is not going to be a horror film. This is more yeah. comedy than anything. You know, and, and with yeah, with the title, I, I and the sort of you know roughness of the gang. I sort of thought you know I figured it was a, a horror comedy, but I thought there would be a little more by way of horror. And and that you know as soon as that music kicked in, I was like, nope. Yep. We're we're all in on the comedy side. <laughs> Yeah, that, uh, that all goes out the, the window as soon as that door kicks open and the music starts. Um, so we have a town that finds its dead, turning into zombies and locking them up in the mines of the mountains instead of disposing of them. Okay, I can get on board with that. I mean, 
you know, one of the things I thought is fun about the Walking Dead TV series was to see how like each new camp that the group came across handled the dead. And hmm. so I thought, well, this is interesting. I mean, we'll see where this goes, right? And then of yeah, course, but, yeah. that, but that darn music, <laughs> <laughs> then just De- detracting. And, and then of course, I, I think it's in the second time they they cut to the zombies. You know, as, as we realize they're headed back to town, they're saying home, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, okay, that now it makes sense. <laughs> and really, the zombies are secondary. Yeah, this, oh, absolutely. To this story, and so it, yeah, they're 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 barely a, a blip here in, in what what um, Hoskins is trying to accomplish here. So, all right, so the gals disperse throughout the town for different reasons, looking for tools, looking for love, most of them looking for meat, so to speak. Yes. Uh, when Ralph Willem, the funeral homeowner, um, pulls out in front of one of the gals, the the one that just wanted to you know get something to eat, um, and then hits her over the head to ensure that she's unconscious and then in the next scene he's injecting her with some sort of substance and she's in this room with the initial person that we saw taken from the casket in the beginning of the film so it turns out that Willem is behind all of this and then he tells Bob the dwarf that we saw earlier that he wants all the cycle sluts in the mine by the next day and you know this goes back to what you were saying that you know rob it's a shame that this is presented as a comedy because don kalfa is just so criminally underrated and yeah. this could have very easily been a creepy horror film bring back the dead you're mad they said and mind you this was the united states government needless to say i left Yes, sir. I've been a bad boy. Now go get those whores. I want their dead asses in that mine by tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, sorely lacking in the budget to to really get there. And, and you know, we see that as we, we move forward that, that uh, yeah, special effects weren't um, the forte of anyone involved in this, uh, particularly anything sort of gore-related. Yeah, I mean, we've seen worse for sure, but oh yeah, uh, yeah, you know, they did they did the okay for what they had to work with. Um, from the get-go, Dee Dee was hesitant to go to the town, and then we finally find out why when Billy Bob Thornton makes his appearance, and it turns out that he's Dee Dee's husband, Donnie. And uh, Dee Dee's been gone for six years. In fact, we later find out that she was homecoming queen of the high school in Zariah. So she was uh, the 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 cycle sluts kind of move from town to town and take wayward souls from those towns that want to join them. And at one point, they were in this town, obviously. And uh, and Dee Dee was one of those wayward souls. So yes. We we slowly get you know a, a couple different backstories you know as we you know one uh, and I honestly this is we, we sort of touched on this before the movie is um, very reluctant to provide names of characters for I, I want to say it was almost like twenty five minutes in before I, I at least figured out two people's names um, and so you know one character calls home. And you know, has a child at home, and that she's she's left behind. And one character's an AWOL from the military, so we get we get a couple different backstories. One gal, everyone thinks, is a mute, and yes. they don't ever they they barely touch on that. So absolutely, this was an ense- a, a large ensemble cast that they didn't do a whole lot of uh, work with them, <laughs> presenting them to us beyond kind of. Really, Dee Dee and Rocks, and then a little bit TC. Um, so, Rob, we get perhaps the most bizarre musical interlude in film history <laughs> when the gang leader Rocks walks into a saloon alone, changes the dusty jukebox that's playing a sad country song to some piano and guitar laden rock song and starts singing, Do What Your Big Mama Told You To. Well, you, we've got to set the stage a little more clearly, too. It's a, a CD bar in town that is also currently holding a funeral. For another dead, right, another dead. <laughs> for another dead townie. For a small and, town, a yes. lot of dead people in this town. <laughs> a lot of dead people. 
Yeah, and uh, at one point she it's an open casket too, and so she walks up to the casket and like starts moving the mouth. So mm-hmm. he's singing along with her, and then she goes back to grinding on the jukebox. It's uh, it, I found it very unsettling, it, and I honestly for a minute wondered like, oh, are are we in for? sort of a musical is or is this are we establishing something here that we're going to get some more songs and i actually kind of got excited for a minute that we could be in in for something really different but you know much to my um chagrin that was the only musical interlude but props to Catherine carlin i mean she went for it and yeah absolutely same thing kind of scene stealer like nobody told her she was in a comedy you know, she was bringing it out. She was bringing it like a hardcore drama. And I loved it. Uh, yeah, I loved it and was, you know, also confused by it because there was no. Like, why that song? And yeah, just the whole scene. Why? I did, there was no backstory to that. There was no seeming significance for any piece of it. And. And, you know, as we said, there's a funeral going on. So obviously in this in this bar, the people there for the funeral did not appreciate what she did. Just oh, yeah, great. such a weird. Well, we never get her backstory. And a little later, we do get yeah. some of their the other cycle sluts backstories. And so, I, you know, you just have to maybe assume that that was an attempt here of character development, that maybe she came from a very oppressive home. And, you know, do what your big mama told you. Yeah. And, uh, so I assume that's what that was. And she's kind of the mom to all of all of these gals. So, yeah, but, you know, what else I, I find unsettling is a film that never settles on what type of film it's going to be, as we've talked <laughs> about here. I mean, we've got all sorts of really strong feminism messages in this film. But at around the 34 minute mark, things get really uncomfortable when a guy in the bar grabs the uh, very young apparently mute newer member of the biker gang drags her over to this open coffin in the saloon starts choking her tells her to yeah. kiss the corpse really not cool with that scene and it it felt so you know for a movie that had, as you said hadn't settled on anything it still felt wildly out of character relative to everything we'd seen to that point so yeah I was absolutely confused by that that sequence and just was like what what is happening now right you take the zombies out of this and now you've got a group of of a female biker gang that rolls into this small town that is traditionalist and does not like seeing women out of their old school what would be you know considered (laughs) traditional roles from back in the 50s and 60s really and then and then you throw scenes like this on it, and then it makes sense. And it's there's your, it's a very realistic horror film, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah. it's but but it's not. So, but okay. So, Rox breaks a whiskey bottle on the counter and confronts the guys. Um, however, the very next shot is outside of the saloon with Dee Dee saying to the rest of the girls, "We got to get out of here." Where's Rox? And then cut to the coffin flying out of the bar. <laughs> so again, it's like really disturbing scene followed by this comedic uh here we go we got a good old-fashioned bar brawl you know right outside and and uh i I, we get this bar this outside you know brawl and i'm all for it because i want to see all these guys get their just due by getting just the stuffing kicked out of them by the by the gals but still just juxtaposed together those two scenes just didn't didn't. yeah and 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 we mostly get a, a cutaway before we get to really see them, you know, giving these uh, funeral attendees their comeuppance. You know, we, we cut we cut away. So, yeah, mind you, the zombies still aren't <laughs> doing yeah. anything. And uh, so it all leads to a big showdown in the center of town, which now is reminiscent of kind of like a Western. I got I got like a Western feel oh. from this, but with okay. diegetic music similar to like taps playing in a in a like a military movie um it's that's a a good uh i i didn't put that together at the time but as soon as you said it yeah yeah exactly what that reminded me of yeah and and that and that's playing while one of the biker gals pulls out a grenade and then takes donnie hostage to get away from the crowd of townspeople that now have you know borne shotguns and and really are coming after the 
the the women. So boy, I mean, I feel I feel like this is the longest uh, third act. Uh, yeah. Uh, because I feel like that 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 would typically be like a, a, the climax of a film is the big showdown, oh, yeah. but then it's yeah. like up and down and up and down from that point on. A lot happens in a short period of time after this. Uh, Dee Dee goes looking for Lucille, that uh, the first gal that was run over by Willem earlier in the movie. She and Donnie find Lucille's body. Uh, Willem shoots and kills Donnie and locks Dee Dee in a freezer. We f- we figure out how he's reanimating these people now zombies in a fashion that I don't think I've seen done in the zombie genre. He puts um, a device that has a battery in their brain. Rob, are you familiar with this technique? Are we an energizer in the head away from World War Z? It was. I, I feel like that whole side of things was so poorly explained because when when he first kills Lucille, you know the the first. Um, cycle slut he were there's a scene where he's injecting her with something blue Mm -hmm. but then as you said then you know the next scene we get he's popping a battery in one of the heads and then later we get the sort of more detailed explanation of how this all connects to the mind Mm -hmm. and i was like i i have no idea how any of this is is happening or what any of this all really means, or it was just such a very high-level, quick kind of uh, brush-off way to explain things. I did the the only thing I did really like there was, um, well, I did kind of like that idea that we're gonna re, you know, you, you, your brain is electrical, and so the fact that he's putting batteries in there to keep him going is pretty funny. Uh, but then uh, I I like the look of the scene. It, I mean for the limited budget that they obviously dealt with that looked pretty cool. I mean, it looked like he was sliding it into his brain. It did. Yeah. That was the, the, the scene in terms of special effects. I was most Mm -hmm. impressed with in, in the movie. I, I pulled that one off. Well, it was really gross. And so that means it did its job. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So Dee Dee eventually escapes from Willem reconvenes with the cycle sluts, just as the zombies finally arrive in Zariah, uh, which is funny because then they're all going home, as you said they were mentioning. So they all like show up in their homes, and at one point, one references that this has happened before, <laughs> yeah. like you know. And uh, we get a long, drawn-out battle between the townspeople, the biker gang, the zombies, some infighting between Dee Dee and Rocks. Um, at some point, we revisit the St. Peter's Home for the Blind Orphans, who are still stuck in the school bus as the zombies attack. Uh, the gals save the kids from the zombies and capture Bob the dwarf who finally explains why Willem is reanimating people. Uh, you just referenced that. How, how do you, what do you think about how it all kind of tied together? I don't fully understand it still because <laughs> he references that there's, you know, they did radioactive testing in the mine, but then he was, like which created some sort of substance in the mind that had value and they were trying to harvest it but people kept dying so he reanimated them so they could go harvest whatever it was but then it still sort of sounded like that's how he was reanimating them like that was a piece of that puzzle mm-hmm. too and i was left going I, I don't understand what's happening but you also well i mean we have to go back briefly and talk about the Uzi that is <laughs> weirdly and strangely on the school bus for blind orphans. <laughs> it's they- a, th- a throwaway line when they are first introduced that the driver of the bus has an Uzi. And then of course they have to, to use it to what they think at the time is save themselves from the zombies. So we have a, a, a blind teen wielding an Uzi with pinpoint accuracy taking out zombies <laughs> and at one point uh the, one of the gals is on the bus with the boy with the uzi and instead of grabbing the uzi and shooting the zombies she's like t- guiding him as to where to shoot i thought that was yeah. great <laughs> yeah I, it was interesting I, the premise is pretty cool like oh we can't go in there with people we can't afford robots uh, yeah so yeah. let's let's create zombies and send them in and then he was selling the material so yeah it was worth 
money for some reason. So they, yeah, you know, so this was the end of the eighties and we <laughs> saw a, um, a, a, a number of zombie films that made social statements, you know, mainly on consumerism, consumption, things of that nature. And yeah. I feel like perhaps, um, that our screenwriter, Dan Hoskins saw that somewhere that, Hey, zombie films make social statements. He wanted to make a, a feminist statement and just figured I'll wrap it up in a zombie film somehow. I feel like that might be because they're just so in the background and not really oh. critical to this movie at all, even though they're in the title. So I feel like that might be the reason for them. Well, yeah, I, I definitely there is this sense that there's, you know, enough other stuff between the, you know, the the blind orphans, the, the biker gang and the town that you had a, a whole movie there. You know, but then needed, as you said, to add this social element. So, like, how could we get that? Well, throw in zombies too, and make that sort of the backstory. And yeah, any 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 piece of that puzzle could have been removed and made for sort of a, a tighter film. But you know, that's why we're here. You know, <laughs> so we end up with movies like this. Yes, but we do. It does lead to some just great lines there's a hilarious line at one point where the the biker gang tells the townspeople that they need to kill the zombies uh because they're hesitant to because you know it's their family it's their friends and so they say you know we won't kill them they're 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 us and dd yells they're gonna eat you and one of the townspeople (laughs) shrugs and walks off saying "Eh, family (laughs) and i did i mean that was like could have been like a, a in a good movie, like a great moment of, of like heartbreak and, and, you know, we don't want to be the ones to fight them because, yeah. you know, it's, it's my mom, it's my son, it's my, you know, brother. And, and yeah, we, we get, it gets played for laughs here. Yeah. Uh, there's an awesome sequence when Rox is taking out a bunch of zombies in the street with fireworks exploding behind her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this movie has some really cool shots and, decent effects for the limited budget i mean the, the zombies at times looked okay at times looked like they barely had any makeup on um, yeah not necessarily the zombies but you know there's all sorts of explosions they blew up a house they blew up a bus um and tried to... uh, a majority of the film was shot at night which i know is never easy and uh it looked, looked pretty good overall all things considered i mean we were watching a very old <laughs> dubbed copy on youtube so yeah uh, busted copy play a role too in 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 the quality absolutely yeah and and i love the fact too that you know and and it sort of comes out of nowhere that (laughs) rox's weapon of choice is a whip i just (laughs) just loved that element being thrown in there (laughs) yeah so this big battle is still going on rob probably 30 minutes in at least uh 30 minutes into this final climactic battle they uh they finally finally lure the zombies to a church and blow it up and willem is killed off in his own hearse (laughs) very fitting (laughs) the next morning the gang makes bob and the blind orphans honorary cycle slut members and then they ride off to the next town um taking a couple guys with them couple of the 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 guys. couple of the townies yeah. yes um which yeah. one was was lance you know who i i go going back to his and and tc's uh you know we get sort of her history of wanting to be a music producer mm-hmm. and and him you know being sort of happy with being in town i guess but then as we find out he comes back around and wants to leave and and i kind of felt at that point in the movie when that scene goes down that these were our focal characters and it just totally shifts away and, and goes to Dee Dee and, and sort of her empowerment you know uh, of story but uh, yeah I thought that it feels like some stuff ended up on the cutting room floor between these two for him to you know um, you because know, he does save them at the end at the church when he takes that that one zombie out so it, it just felt like there may have been more scenes of him in the movie than actually made the final cut yeah you, it, you probably had multiple storylines planned that just 
like you said, ended up on the cutting room floor. Yeah. It certainly felt that way at the end. And uh, as they're all riding away, one of the townspeople asks, what about the mine? And Rox yells, we took care of it. <laughs> and then we cut to security footage of the gals sneaking past this one lone zombie who the whole movie has been in a trance um, following back and forth of the security camera that was watching the, the mine yeah. door. I love that. We didn't even bring that up. but then, uh, And they filled the mine with dynamite with like an upbeat fake REM song. Uh, yeah, yeah. A fitting ending to a bizarre and wild movie. And Rob, what did you think of the way Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town wrapped up? Um, it, it was a, uh, I guess, happier ending, I guess, than I expected. I sort of thought somewhere in this, you know, uh, Rox was going to be a casualty and Dee Dee was going to sort of assume control of the gang and they would uh, be a little bit more um, well-adjusted <laughs> than, than, than her leadership um, brought them. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was a fine ending. You know, they, they wrapped everything up. There were, really weren't any loose ends and uh, like we see in a lot of these, these yeah. movies. And, and uh, you know, they saved the town. So, so maybe yeah. they are turning in, uh, you know, and over a, into um, better times and, and being more uh, beneficial to society. <laughs> yeah, and, and accepting men now. So yeah, a yeah. Step, step for them, too. Uh, yeah, I thought it was funny, too, how they just kind of, you know, the cops at some point are going to want to come sort all this out, and they just leave, <laughs> leaving it, leaving that mess for the townspeople. You've got a church filled filled with of dead people blown up. Dead and bodies, yeah. Blood <laughs> all over the town. And they're like, eh, we're out of here. <laughs> we're moving on. Uh, okay, Rob, so enough about We Think. Let's find out what others are saying. And the most efficient way to do that is to poll 1,000 listeners. But we don't have time for that, do we? So <laughs> instead, I went to Rotten Tomatoes. Unfortunately, there's no official tomato meter score because apparently critics are afraid to review a film named Chopper, Chip, Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town. It's a mouthful. I've stumbled over it a couple times. Uh, well, it's it, also got... Um it's called Chrome Heart in in some circles. Like I, I ran across that name a couple times in in searches I did, although it was never like AKA or you know. But a few uh, people said in some areas it's called that, which I couldn't really find any sort of explanation as to as to what in some areas meant. But uh, you know, it does have that alternative title. But yeah, there isn't a whole lot about this movie, you know, and in in general, like I couldn't find any. Any box office information, any budget information, um, it, yeah, it's sort of a lesser known and, and more lost movie than some of the others we've covered. Yeah, it, yeah, it's uh, it, it had the release in the U.S. at a film festival, so technically giving it a theatrical release, but yeah. uh, but I don't think other than that it, it was released anywhere, just straight to video, I'm sure. Um, so no tomato meter score, but it does have an audience score because you know that a cult classic like this will have its fans, and they delivered. So more than one thousand <laughs> ratings from one oh, wow. to one hundred. Um, so of those one thousand plus ratings, Rob, what do you think the audience score is for Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town? Gosh, I'm so bad at this. I'm, I'm going to go thirty-eight uh, percent on this one. Not too shabby. A surprisingly low, though, still, I thought, 42%. Okay. I thought because it was uh, just the uh, audience at score that, that you might get a little higher review if you're taking the time. But, uh, okay, let's read a few of these reviews, shall we? Please. John K. gives it three out of five stars and writes, Here's a film that delivers exactly what the title promises, a goofy tale of a female motorcycle gang that wanders into a town that is later overrun by zombies. There is really no honest attempt to explain the zombie outbreak, and it probably isn't necessary anyway. This film is pure trauma-style fun with a gun-wielding, blind school students, foul-mouthed biker chicks, and yes, Billy Bob Thornton. This is typical 1980s late-night cable horror fodder, and with an empty head and a fridge full of beer, it's perfect entertainment. Don't expect anything earth-shattering, and you'll be pleasantly surprised. Quotable, laughable, and a few moments of moments of zombie mayhem. Chopper Chicks is a good time. 
That's pretty, pretty. That's yeah, pretty good review. I mean, he even points out that the town was later overrun by zombies. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't happen right away. They didn't run into Zombie Town. It became Zombie Town after they got there. So well, that that mine must have really been on the outskirts of town, and and as we know, zombies aren't you know, and, and back then aren't quick moving. So it took them a while to get to town. They walked actually by a sign that said five miles to the town. So I'm impressed that this movie wasn't like a a, a five DVD set. <laughs> Of just zombies <laughs> shuffling down the road at, at a pace. Um, okay, Zane R. also gives it three stars and writes, Don Kalfa's performance is as an unrepentant mad scientist is one of the best things to ever to happen to a trauma movie. The movie is nowhere near as entertaining as its title, but at least it delivers on both the chopper chicks and the zombie town. Can't say the same for werewolves on wheels. While it's not officially a trauma film... This, this is me now, uh, not yeah. Zane. So, re- <laughs> responding to Zane's review, while it's not officially a trauma film, but just a trauma release. release but otherwise, yeah. Zane, I agree with you 100% on uh, Don Kalfa's performance, as we as we discussed earlier. And Werewolves on Wheels, Rob, are you familiar with this 1971 B movie? I am not. That's another new one for me. Yeah, it also didn't air on USA Up All Night, but uh, we've got a few outside. We might have to have a few Some special homework. episodes uh, <laughs> uh, or double features, just like they have uh, where we cover two. Uh, and finally, Christopher R. gives it just one star and writes, One star because there is one scene where the chick humps a jukebox. Well, there is that, uh, Christopher. Yeah. And all I can tell you is make sure you do what your big mama told you <laughs> oh, such a weird scene he's so weird um okay rob so this was somehow the first time for both of us watching chopper chicks in zombie town oh wait before before we close out yeah. i i saw one quote that i, I have to, to to bring out uh, it was from efilmcritic.com and it's just like one of those that you would see on like the DVD or something like that. And it says it's seven samurai with lesbian biker trash. Oh. <laughs> I thought to just even evoke seven samurai. Right. <laughs> to this movie. I had, I had to bring it up, but uh, that one made me laugh out loud. Well, <laughs> I, enjoyed it. I, I assume this was written by a male because there was only one lesbian in the group, and that was Rox. Yes. And it yes. was made very clear because all the women went out and, and found male love interests. So, again, pointing out that this there was a need for this movie, that, yeah. that women were still not seen um, in society. And that's yeah. essentially the, the, the crux of the movie. All right, so now that we've finally seen this movie amazingly for the first time each... Um, time to answer answer the question do you think it's worth staying up all night for i'm gonna have to be brutally honest in this one and and going back to me of the past i would have very quickly lost interest in this one and changed the channel so i'm gonna have to go with no fair enough fair enough even though that you know as you said there is a a a message to be heard um you know that was at that time, sort of before its time, but, but, uh, yeah, it didn't, it didn't achieve my, my standards, um, of enjoyment. So it was an odd film. It was a little bit disjointed. It had, it was hard to follow at times with the, with the number of cast members that they didn't really go into detail with. But, uh, I, I do still, I do stay that it's worth staying up all night. Uh, for but I am disappointed in the movie in that in its heart with the social statement that it makes about women in society it should have been more than a B movie um, you know Rob this almost felt like spookies in that it was almost scripted as two me- movies in one yeah it bounces between serious and silly literally shot to shot and the two just don't mix well at all uh, and like like wildly silly as as you indicate with the circus music. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, every now and again it does like when the when the blind boy says, um, oh geez, 
blind kids, a midget, dykes on bikes, we could start a sideshow. <laughs> and then goes on to say Jeez. to Didi, if we knew our place, like you. Um, in my cultural representation class, we talk a lot about the other and mm-hmm. essentially anyone deemed different and how they are presented in cinema. And in the case of this movie, it's told from the ideology of the white male norm which, as we know, has in fact been the norm since the beginning of this country. Uh, and while we've made strides, it is still a dominant ideology. Uh, and, uh, you know, anyone different in that world struggles to to fit in. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you stripped away the reanimation plot line, this could easily have been, I think, a gritty drama that almost fits into the 70s you know, American new wave cinema movement after the elimination of the production code where, you know, films were now allowed to cover much more controversial topics to be explored. Um, there's a poignant scene where rocks lays into the other girls, giving us just a little bit of insight into their history and how they've been abused by men uh, yeah. held down. Um, rocks is really trying to toughen them up, push them to be better in a society that doesn't want them to, su- to succeed, but she doesn't know how to do it. And um, all we know about her backstory is perhaps the, the odd, unsettling, do what your big mama told you <laughs> song. So, um, you know. Yeah, I, and that sort of felt like the, the crux of the tension between, you know, her and, and Dee Dee is, you know, she's got that, that strong message, you know, of, of trying to, as you said, guide everyone. And Dee Dee just had a, a sort of um, maybe thoughts on a better way to get there, um, a, a gentler hand than than the, the you know sort of tough and gruff, you know, and and sort of no BS of rocks. Well, and this the, those two characters very much I thought you know one of the reasons I think I, I referenced Thelma and Louise is. Uh, not just the reversal of, of roles that, that are typically seen as, as uh, male uh, roles in this type of movie, but also, you know, Susan Sarandon and, and Gina Davis in in that movie, they had a similar dynamic yeah. that Rox and Dee Dee have in mm-hmm. this film. But remember, this film was was made a couple of years earlier, so yep. pretty interesting. Um, and again, I couldn't get away then also from Dee Dee's kind of Gina Davis lookalike, just like wow, you know. We have to say we we joke sometimes, you know. What you know is could this have inspired this you know, film later? And and you got to ask yourself of, of this film. So I, this was kind of like Anchorman, Thelma and Louise, and The Hills Have Eyes all rolled into one. <laughs> yeah. A sentence that I thought I'd never say. <laughs> um, but I think the reason, Rob, that I think it's worth staying up all night for is it's definitely worth a watch to see how hard films had to struggle in the '80s to get a loud, strong female message across. Mm-hmm. So I think it's definitely worth, but, well, but, yeah, but, yeah. but definitely not your, uh, there's enough in it to still make it enjoyable as a USA up all night film. Uh, but it, but it definitely goes deeper than that at times. So yeah. Okay. So agree well to disagree for well now. Said. And I yeah. uh, didn't mean to take it so deep, but that's, that's what I got. That's the, that's the vibe yeah, I yeah. got from this film for sure. Excellent. All right, so that's going to do it for this episode of Still Up All Night and Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town by request. And uh, we're glad to be back in session. If you have a film that you remember watching on USA Up All Night and you'd like us to dive into it, let us know. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Still Up Podcast. And remember, do what your big mama told you. <laughs> You can take it, you can leave it, but you take it from me.
John, you don't want TV. You want coitus. Ha <laughs> ha